I spoke to you last week about the seven factors of enlightenment, that description of the beautiful qualities of heart and mind that we develop on this path and that lead us towards liberation. I'd like to speak tonight about another list that uh, is in some ways similar to the seven factors, but has a quite different unfolding and is quite powerful in the, the breadth and scope that it offers to us. And I think what's interesting about talking about these two lists, comparing them, um, is to know that they're just one of many ways in which the Buddha described the unfolding of our path. And what this uh, shows to us is there's not one way that this might happen. There's not one set formula of uh, sequential experiences that then lead to liberation because the Buddha was a very skillful teacher and he saw that each of us have our own um, unique set of characteristics and respond in different ways to experience. And so he offered a variety of paths and processes um, that describe the the sequence of uh, awakening. And so this is a list a description called Transcendent Dependent Arising or Transcendental Dependent Origination. You can see different translations of it. It's a very inspiring teaching, but it's actually not that common in the suttas. It only appears a couple of times. But because of its breadth and scope, um, I find it, very inspiring, and it's, it's um, uplifting because of the range of experiences that it encompasses and the trajectory that it shows us is possible. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the preeminent, preeminent um, Pali scholars of, of this day, he's currently translating nearly all of the uh, Pali canon into beautiful English, considers this a tremendously important sutta even though it's somewhat rare. And I think one of the reasons he considers it so, and I agree, is that it begins with our current condition. It begins with where we're caught, where we struggle, and shows us a way out of that struggle to the greatest depths of liberation. So it doesn't begin assuming that we're already in a great place. It says, no, right here and now in the difficulties of our life, in the torments of mind, we can actually find a path that will lead us to greater and greater freedom. And it also uh, is a teaching about the conditioned nature of our experience. It shows us, as we've been emphasizing throughout this retreat, how nothing arises independently. Things arise out of causes and conditions. And if we can begin to understand that process we're not then a victim of it. We can actually have input into those causes and conditions and change the trajectory if we bring the mindfulness in, if we bring the wisdom in. So it's definitely a teaching like that, letting us know that through clarity of intention and wisdom, we can be uh, an active participant in the unfolding of our spiritual path and practice. The teaching, uh, the particular way this uh, list um, unfolds that I'm going to speak about tonight is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Upanisa Sutta. Um, And as I said, it's a 
teaching of conditionality. And it's important to remember when you hear or read teachings of conditionality, of cause and effect, that what is happening here is a conditioning process. Even though it's cause and effect, it doesn't mean that it's a literal process in the sense that A always means B will happen next. What conditioning means is that what it's actually saying is when A is like this, B is like this or like that. That the first factor influences the next factor. It doesn't cause it to happen. And it's really important to to get this distinction because we can get uh, both blaming and have expectation if, if we think that, well, it should be happening in this way or it shouldn't be happening in this way. So it's a conditioning process. So in, say, in this list, the first two links are suffering and faith. And so what the, the teaching is is when suffering is like this, faith is like this. When we understand suffering in this way, faith can arise and it can have this kind of effect on us. So it's conditioning, not directly causal in the sense of if this happens, that happens. And so this is very similar. This teaching of conditionality is uh, a strong factor in another teaching that many of you may be aware of called dependent origination. And I had thought of giving a a talk on that, but um, Andrea is going to talk more about some of the aspects of this, this profound teaching, dependent origination, which we've mentioned a couple of times already tomorrow night. So I'll just refer to it in the sense that it relates to this teaching on transcendent dependent origination. Dependent origination, briefly, is a description of these 12 links that begin with ignorance, lead us through craving and becoming, all forms of attachment and self-identification into more suffering. And then because we haven't seen through the cause of that suffering, we're just immediately back in ignorance and the cycle just continues. So it's the description really of us being caught on the wheel of suffering, caught in the cycle of samsara. And so it's just a description of how that is, can be an endless, endless uh, trajectory that we're on when we don't recognize it, don't understand what's happening. And I'll talk more about how this relates a little later on, but it's, it's this, this teaching actually arises out of the understanding of dependent origination. So the transcendent dependent arising is just another map, another way for us to understand our unfolding. And I spoke last week about maps and how they can be both useful but also sometimes misleading. Um, and I, I love maps and love to understand where I, are, where I am in, in a new environment. And one of the things I've done since I've come here is know more about where I am than some people who've lived here for 20 years because I like to go out and find maps and explore where I am. So I actually got another map last week. I was in a little local store, and they just had on the counter a little book that said something like, 12 Easy Walks Around Barry." I thought, sounds great. Picked up this book, and we decided to go for a walk on our day off a, f- a few days ago. So I picked out of this book Uh, what I thought was a very simple walk, taking into account the capacities of my companions. And uh, (laughs) 
not naming anyone. <laughs> and thought, you know, this, this look, it says easy. If it says easy in this book, it must be easy because one of the walks in the book is walking around the track at the local high school. So that's kind of, you know, <laughs> the beginning of easy in this book. But as you know, the hardest part of, of orienting yourself on any map description is finding the starting point. You ever had that problem? It's like you get to the basic area, you can't find, that's the important point is where do you begin from? And of course, at first we were driving and we missed the beginning. We, we went way past it and had to backtrack to find where we were meant to start from. And so we found it and we're pretty sure we'd found it, but you're never 100% confident. And we head down this trail and we're meant to take a right-hand turn. And it says after less than half a mile. So we're kind of getting a sense of the distance and a little way down the path, we see a left-hand turn. We go, no, that's not it. We want a right-hand turn. So we keep going. And, you know, it gets to at least about half a mile. And the whole track, the whole, we're on like a fire road, turns right. And there's a little tra- trail off to the left. And we're all going, well, we're meant to turn right. But it says it's a turn, not that the whole trail goes. But maybe this is it. You know, we hadn't seen anything else. So we keep going. We just turn and we follow. And then it says there should be a swamp on your left. And we go, well, there's a little patch of water over there. Maybe this is the swamp. And it says, you know, we're reading the description of the path, which is quite detailed. And then you go up a little rise. There's a pine tree, yes, you know, little rise. And so we're trying to convince ourselves that we're on this right path, matching the directions in the book, because it's one of those ones that just has the outline of the path and nothing to put it in any context. And we're going further and further, and the similarity between the description and what's happening is getting further and further apart. <laughs> but we, we're reluctant to admit that we've gone the wrong way. So, and I especially, keep going. It must, maybe it's this little crossing here. Is this the dike that we're meant to be crossing? And, and just can cr- see how we're trying to fit our experience into what it says in the book. And I even commented at this time, this is really like meditation where you get some ideas in your head and you have an experience. Maybe this is it, isn't it? It feels like this and it looks like that. And am I having this experience? It was really like that. But after a while where it really got different and we were passing under transmission lines and coming to T intersections, even I had to admit that I think we were lost. And I hate going back. And we'd been sort of turning right, so I kept thinking, well, maybe we'll just go in a circle. If we keep walking, you know, we'll come back. And my companions very wisely said, no, you know, we're not going in the right direction. So we turned around and met some other hikers who said, oh, you needed to turn off way back there. And as soon as they said it, I realized where we'd gone wrong. When there was that left turn, we needed to look across the path, and there was the right-hand turn that we'd missed. But because we were looking left... We didn't see it, and we kept going. And it was, as we went back, I looked, you know, we all looked to find it, and there it was, as clear as day. This is what can happen if we have some idea in our head or if the information we have is limited to just this linear process. So what I'm trying to emphasize in telling this story is not to take these teachings as some um, absolute You know, this is the way it should look like. If you get to here, this is what happens next. They're really just uh, suggestions about possibilities. And what's most important to take from them are not, you know, 
zoom, I'm going in this direction and this is what should happen, but to understand possibilities and factors of mind and heart that can be cultivated and what's actually really supportive in your practice and needs to be enlivened to allow this development to happen. So it really is much more about possibilities rather than uh, any sense of limitation or constriction. And I can, you know, my understanding of this also comes from the fact, as I said, there are many of these kinds of lists in the suttas where the Buddha talks about how the path unfolds, and they're quite different. They'll have some little similar moments, and then they'll diverge. So each of us will find um, a teaching or a practice or a way that works for us or at different times find ourselves uh, connecting with a certain map or unfolding and can use that, but not to be constricted by it, not to know, just think that this is the only way it can happen. Because we don't want to get caught up in the idea of journey and goal. Then it can get kind of future or outward-oriented, you know, this is where I am here, stuck in suffering, and I have to get there, wherever that is. And it, and it, it doesn't um, allow us to fully be right where we are. And it's often that the spiritual journey is depicted as kind of an outward movement. You know, the, the, the um, classic description of the seeker putting on their backpack and heading out into the wilderness, the hermit going out to the the hut somewhere, and you know that we think there has to be this movement, physical movement outwards. This uh, archetype has been actually uh, co-opted by cartoonists. If you've noticed, there's now a plethora of what we call the guru cartoons, and I've taken to collecting them because there's all of these this this whole archetype of cartoons of you know the classic is the guru on the mountaintop outside a cave, and he's got a long beard and little loincloth or something on, and someone has just crept up the mountaintop and has obviously just asked the question. And you have to assume it's something like, you know, what is the meaning of life? And one of the ones I saw recently is, uh, I'll make a deal with you. This is the guru responding to this person. I'll make a deal with you. I'll tell you the secret of life if you tell me how to program my VCR. Actually, you can tell it's old. Now it would be how to program my TiVo. That's even more complicated. But it's not about that we have to get from here and go there. In teaching about these kinds of um, processes, it's really an inner unfoldment that's a very natural development that only arises out of a deep and profound connection to being where we are right now. So not to put it, I'm not wanting to put it out there as some sense of, you know, this is what you should be striving for, or this is where you have to go, but really as a, as a, um, a much broader view than that, view of possibilities. Because even as they're presented linearly, as I was saying last week, they're not, they don't work in that way optimally. There's many feedback loops. They're not so discrete often, the different steps. So you really have to use them as skillful means, uh, not as uh, something definitive. But there is this sense of development. This is a path of development where we really see the places of constriction, the places of delusion that keep us bound and open to the possibility of greater clarity, greater freedom, greater happiness. This process of deepening can only happen if we're willing 
to keep connecting again and again with our experience. So the forward movement isn't actually forward at all. It's staying present over and over again with what's happening to us here and now in this moment. What that's, um, what's really happening in that is continuity. It's a continuity of awareness. It's what, again, we've been talking about a lot over the days of the retreat. And you can really feel the power of that. For those of you that have been here for many weeks or even just a few weeks, feel the power of that continuity. And to really see for yourself how if any thoughts of ending of the retreat, as far away as that might be, I mean, in the real world out there, it's weeks away. For most people, it would be the longest retreat they'd ever, they've ever been on. But if we have that sense of, oh, end is nearly here, I'm nearly finished, practice will stall because we put an end to that, sense, that willingness to connect. We're leaning out into the future. So to use these teachings and the opportunity we have of being here for these many more weeks to go, to really stay present and to see what's possible to cultivate in our hearts and minds in the greater, greater depths of freedom. As I said, this teaching arises out of the wheel of dependent origination, these 12 links that begin with ignorance, um, describe sort of the human condition of having a mind and a body and all of the senses, the place we get caught in the Vedana, the pleasant unpleasantness or neutrality of experience into craving and then clinging, and we just go round and round. When I was thinking about this, you know, it's often depicted in a wheel, as a wheel, and thinking thinking of all the things that go round, you know, it could be like a bicycle wheel turning, and what I thought was that, um, you know, it is possible to break that wheel. That's how we discover freedom. And we can break it in a moment. And it's kind of like sticking a stick or something in the spokes of a bicycle wheel as it's going around. You know, if you do that and it just jams to a stop. But unfortunately what happens, we're there, we've stopped it, the wheel is ended, there's freedom in that moment. And then we go, oh, but there's that. And we let go of whatever it was that, Stop the wheel. It's not that great an analogy, but I'll go with it. And, you know, get on, move on to this next thing that's caught our attention or we're worried about. And there's such momentum in the wheel, it just starts up again. And then maybe we, you know, find another place where we stop that wheel, we stick something in the spokes. But the momentum is so strong. And I also thought of like a Catherine wheel. Do you know those fireworks that, ha- that are somehow in a circle, and the fireworks come out at, at one end, and so it spins it around, spins it around. The reason that made sense to me is because I think of transcendent dependent arising as, as opposed to a wheel. It's like the kind of fireworks that go up and then just dissolve. You know, those beautiful clouds of color and light that are so real and so alive and brilliant, but then they just flicker out. This is the potential of this teaching of transcendent dependent origination. It's a one-way street in a sense. It, if you begin on this path, this is where it heads to, to the highest liberation, to, to the complete freedom and emptiness that's possible. So I often think of it, 
Unfortunately, it's not that quick for most of us. And I think it's actually a bit more like another analogy that I thought of was, if you know that, I've never played it, but it's often in cartoons that I would see when I was growing up. I think that in, in uh, circuses or sideshows, they would call it Ring the Bell, and it's the, the circus game, what do you call it, um, where they have all those games, it's not going to tell me, arcades or whatever, where, thank you, <laughs> where you, uh, there's a platform and a big bell, and you have a big mallet, and you have to hit the thing, and it how strong you are de- de- determines how far up it goes, up this rope or something. And if you hit it really strongly, you ring the bell, and that's like you've won the prize. I kind of think of transcendent dependent arising like that. You know, <laughs> here we are hitting our bell and plop, plop. It just goes back again. Next time, maybe a little higher. Sometime we'll get it right. You know, we'll hit that thing and boing, and out it'll go. But for most of us, we don't make it the whole way you know, today or whenever. But not to think of it again, I I put out that analogy, it's not that great, and it's not like, you know, oh, we have to get there, this is what it's all about. Because every movement of exploration of this, this process, this path, is actually creating this amazing foundation for our practice and our lives. So no movement in this direction is wasted, even if, you know, there might be a sense of, perhaps not being in such a rarefied state as I was yesterday or, you know, three weeks ago, whenever your peak experience that you think it was might have been. Um, you know, the, the, and again, the image is like climbing a mountaintop and you make all the effort to get there and when you get to the top, there's this amazing view, but you can't live up there. So you go back down, but you've seen that view. You've seen that possibility. It rewires something in the brain. Something shifts. This is what these kind of teachings show us. That I also think it's, I don't know why I've had all these analogies for this. It's not like climbing a ladder where as you climb, you let go of the, the, the rung below. It's more like stairs that have bulk on them. You know those Japanese staircase. And so you're actually creating... I don't know why I'm going on. (laughs) It made sense to me when I was thinking about it. Something might help you, I don't know. Anyway. It's it's a process. (laughs) Not to think of it as as about the journey. That's the main thing. And... Also what it does is shows us uh, that there is a wisdom to the unfolding that we experience. Sometimes all we want to get there is to ring that bell. You know, we're just going to keep banging on that thing until we ring the bell. And it says, no, you can't just wail away at that thing. You've got to put in the groundwork that develops these beautiful states of heart and mind like joy or happiness or tranquility and from that foundation, the opening can happen. So it, 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 there's a lot of wisdom. This foundation of well-being is necessary for us to open to these deeper and more challenging experiences and practices. So that's my introduction. And I'm <laughs> I haven't even started. It's 12 links to go. <laughs>
So the list, (laughs) here it is, begins with suffering. And that's why we can all relate, I think, right? Suffering. Then faith, joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, knowledge and vision of things as they are, disenchantment, dispassion, emancipation, knowledge and destruction of the taints. So it's quite an amazing list that begins, as I said, right here with where we're struggling and goes through these beautiful qualities of mind and heart and then has this turning towards liberation and away from being caught in the things of the world to the final and full, complete emancipation. And its connection to dependent origination is with this first link of suffering. As I've said, that is the in dependent, because it's a wheel, you can't really say an ending, but it's the twelfth link, if you think of it that way, that then goes on to ignorance and starts again. Transcendent dependent origination, this is the fireworks thing. It goes off from suffering into the unknown, the wild blue yonder kind of thing. Suffering is the first noble truth. Guy talked for a whole evening about it. So it's something we've been bringing into our practice, bringing into our mindfulness, this opening to the truth of suffering. But it's a noble truth, noble truth of suffering. And it's a really interesting question. I can't remember whether a guy talked about this or not. What makes it noble? Why noble? What's noble about suffering? Good friend and colleague Gil Fronsdale asked this question and said that what's, it becomes noble when you find a path in it, when you actually understand the suffering and see that there's a way out that there's a cause of suffering and therefore an end of suffering. As Ajahn Chah says, there's this kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. When we understand suffering and we see there's a possibility of finding a way out. The Buddha, of course, was the one who discovered this path. When he was on his journey, he had no teacher or guide. All he had was his suffering and a conviction that it was possible to end the suffering. We've talked a little bit about his journey and how he went from living a, a very luxurious life to seeing so clearly and um, with great vividness the the challenge of life. He, you know, he hadn't known about old age, sickness, and death, and when he saw those as truths that were true for him as they were for everyone, he was so shocked he needed to find a way out, and that propelled him on his journey. But in this, for this teaching to arise or this process to happen, Something has to happen in our relationship to suffering. In dependent origination, we're just lost in the suffering. 
in our usual, in the usual scheme of things. We're resisting it, we're kicking and screaming, we're coming up with strategies, we're trying to hold on to things, we're trying to push other things away. It's just this endless struggle to try and get away from or out of suffering, and it just keeps us going on that cycle. For this process of transcendent dependent arising to happen, something has to shift in our relationship to suffering. And what, what has to happen is we have to apply the teachings of the First Noble Truth that Guy spoke about the other day. There is suffering, and the practice or the imperative that comes with that is suffering is to be understood. We need to understand this process of suffering and why it comes about and see for ourselves, even though we're not perhaps fully or completely experiencing it, see the possibility that there is an end to suffering, there is a way out of suffering. This is what has to happen for this shift to take place. And all of us have made that shift. We wouldn't be here on the retreat if we didn't have that belief that it's possible to end suffering, to diminish suffering, to find greater freedom. Otherwise, we'd just be lost in suffering. We'd be suffering in a different way out there in the world. We're choosing to suffer in this unique way here in the retreat. <laughs> so we see that when we have this different relationship to suffering, what's actually being evoked in us is the next factor, the next stage, and that is that of faith. So suffering, when the wisdom factor comes in, when we're on the path, leads to faith. It's an interesting movement there that the, 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 the actual experience of suffering is what brings us onto the path because we see the possibility of the end of suffering. Now, Carol talked beautifully last night about faith, um, so I won't say a huge much more about it, but because it's so important to this list, because of this transition, you know, out of being lost in suffering and going round and round on that wheel, it's faith that breaks that trance, that opens this new set of possibilities. So it's really very central to this process. And I can remember in my early years of practice, I also started uh, with Christopher Titmus. Faith wasn't much talked about. It was really do it for yourself, see it for yourself, forget all of the trappings of Buddhism, and just sit and be mindful, or walk and be mindful, or live and be mindful, but just do it for yourself. Having practiced now for a long time, um, I've really seen that faith is central, that unless we have some sense of both faith in ourselves and our own capacity to awaken, but also faith in possibilities that we haven't yet opened to, faith in the example of others, faith in the Buddha, Dharma Sangha, it's very hard to really deepen and develop on the path. So really uh, can be quite central. I can remember my first retreat in India in the early 80s. It was actually with uh, S.N. Goenka, and I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was incredibly difficult, but I can remember so clearly the, the thought coming again and again, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. 
I don't have to keep perpetuating my suffering and through that causing suffering to others. And it was such a revelation. And I can also remember on that first retreat having a vision. And I'm not someone who normally has visions. I'm a very down-to-earth kind of person. So this was a little unusual. So I still remember it. And the vision was, I'm sitting, looking out, and I saw Jesus in front of me. And Jesus was kind of walking away from me, but turning around towards me and beckoning. And when I looked beyond Jesus, what he was beckoning to was the Buddha sitting there. And it was just a lovely uh, invitation, evocation of, of a path and an and a inclusion and a welcoming. And it was just it was quite inspiring to me. I went to Goenka and said, what does this mean? He said, don't think about it. It doesn't matter. But I actually <laughs> found it quite enlivening. And, and why it came up for me, I would you know, forget about it at times. But a number of years ago, a guy and I went to teach a retreat in Perth, Australia, where I'm from. Not from Perth, I'm from Australia. And uh, it was in a rented facility, as these retreats often are. And it was a Catholic monastery of some kind. It was a Catholic retreat center, and so there's lots of crucifixes and pictures of the Buddha, I mean, sorry, of Jesus <laughs> around, not many Buddhas. But the retreat managers had set up this nice altar with a Buddha sitting behind us. But when I first went to take my seat up on the teaching platform with the Buddha behind me, and I looked out at all the people, and it wasn't as big a room as this, so not that far away, on a far wall was a portrait of Jesus. And it was one of those sort of 70s portraits of Jesus where he's very handsome. He could be a movie star and he's got, looked like a surfer almost, you know, blonde hair and beard, very handsome. But it was a glass portrait of Jesus. So as I looked at him, he was right in front of me. What was reflected was the image of the Buddha. And that vision I had was replicated as I sat there now in the teaching position And it was just an amazing moment for me when I think of all of the confusion and doubt and um, uh, unfounded optimism that I had about my practice at that time, 20 years, 30 years ago, whenever it was, to now really sitting in a place of such faith in the teachings. And so it was a, a beautiful moment to realize the possibility of just being on the path and where it can lead. So we often begin with what's called blind faith, where there's just a sense that, you know, other people have told us this is good, this is a good thing to do. You know, your first retreat is often out of blind faith. You have no, ver- you have no experience yourself. It was that way for me. I was beginning to read about Buddhism. I was in McLeod Gunge, where a lot of Tibetans were, and someone just said to me, if you want to learn about meditation, go and do this retreat. And so I took myself off. I didn't have a clue where I was going. I had to find the place. It was very difficult. Didn't know the teacher, didn't know anyone else going there, and had this amazing experience. But it was really blind faith that got me there. Then we develop what's called bright faith. And bright faith is where something has really been awakened in us. We've heard the teachings. We see that possibility. And that's what I had on my first retreat. Oh, it doesn't have to be like this. Something is shifted, but it's not very established. But then we move to what's called verified faith. And that's where we know 
for ourselves. We'd ha- we've had experiences of letting go, of opening, of transformation, of greater happiness or freedom. And we're on the path. It is what we do, what we know and what we love and what we treasure. And it can lead on to even unshakable faith, where whatever challenges might come up, whatever might happen. Uh, Carol told the story the other night about Super Buddha the leper, and part of that story is that as his, uh, he, he's hearing the Buddha, if you remember, the Buddha recognizes that he's a person that can listen. Someone tests him after he's heard the Dharma and awakened and says, Super Buddha, you know, you're a miserable wretch, a leper. I'll give you all this money if you uh, say the teachings are false. And Super Buddha says, how can you call me a miserable wretch? I have the Dhamma, and I wouldn't give it up for all the money in the world. That's unshakable faith. That's what can happen. Sharon Salzberg has written this beautiful book about faith, very personal and moving, about her experience in the development of faith. And she says, I want to encourage delight in the word to reclaim faith as fresh, vibrant, intelligent, and liberating. This is a faith that emphasizes a foundation of love and respect for ourselves. So this is what's possible, and we see that for ourselves, and we experience directly the, the benefits of this practice in this path. The Buddha said, faith is the beginning of all good things. And so in faith, there is an uplift in the heart. There's a, you know, as the guy said, uh, sadha is the Pali. Um, literally means to put one's heart upon. It's a very heartfelt quality. It leads to the next factor of joy or pomoja. So we have suffering leading to faith, and faith and the uplift that comes from that leading to joy. Again, I think a part of this progression is as we're more and more connected to the path, we're feeling the benefits. And just out of faith and seeing the possibilities for ourselves, joy can naturally arise. Pomoja is the Pali, sometimes translated as gladness or delight. And it's said to come out of a diminishment of the hindrances, as those difficult states of mind uh, diminish, that what we experience, what's possible for us, is this beautiful quality of joy or delight. But it's not a joy that's directed outwards. It can include that, but it is definitely an inner experience of well-being, of contentment, um, where we're free of worry and restlessness, all of the, the different ways the hindrances can manifest. And so we discover appreciation and gratitude and contentment. It's actually becoming a very um, popular practice these days to actually cultivate joy. We did the mudita practice the other night, and I hope you felt some of the benefits of deliberately turning the mind and heart to this beautiful quality that with that inclination of the mind, we do cultivate that process, that, that experience. James Barra, as a good friend and teacher, um, has been doing for a couple of years now these uh, joy, awakening to joy classes. And he's had hundreds and hundreds of people attend them either in person or online 
where they're just monthly teachings about awakening this quality of joy in our life. And it's been amazing to see the effect it's had on his students, how the deliberate paying attention to what brings joy cultivates joy. You know, we sort of know it, but we never follow through because we get distracted or it doesn't seem um, something else is more important. I just got a quote from, from one of the, the participants in, Joy's cl- in James's class who said, I have an increased awareness of joyfulness and the possibility of cultivating it. I also un- understand better how to experience it rather than the old random way of simply being surprised or even worse, unaware of its presence. I now practice choosing to see joy, the joy inherent in many situations, rather than the negative or painful aspects. So we can actually cultivate this quality and see it as a really necessary and wholesome factor on the path. In the sequence comes next a couple of factors that I've already spoken about a bit, so I won't go into them too much, but from suffering, which leads to faith, which leads to joy, comes rapture or pity that I spoke about. It's one of the factors of enlightenment, that that rapt attention in the meditation object that just um, allows the mind to become absorbed and interested in what's happening. And then as it, the same part of the sequence as the seven factors, it leads to tranquility or pasadi, calmness, that, that movement, that natural movement when the energy balances a little out of the rapture and the mind is absorbed in the object, the experience can be calmness or tranquility, often a lack of thought, a, a settledness in the process. Out of tranquility comes happiness or sukha. This is not a bubbly kind of happiness, not, you know, la-di-da, skipping around, because you can see the preceding factor is tranquility, so tranquility infuses the happiness. Steve Armstrong has a beautiful uh, description of sukha. He calls it happy contentment of mind and body. It really is a sense of well-being in this kind of happiness, a softness, a sweetness, very delightful. And happiness, this kind of happiness, this meditative happiness, leads us on to the next factor of concentration, samadhi. What's interesting is that the proximate cause, and that's what the preceding factor is in these kinds of lists, approximate cause of samadhi or concentration, is not effort or striving or hours on the cushion or breaking your knees just to sit a bit longer, It's sukha, or happiness. Really helpful to remember the next time you're gritting your teeth and saying, no, 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 I have to sit longer or harder or more or whatever your definition of striving is. It's actually contentment, happiness that develops, the kind of samadhi that's helpful in this progression. And so what we're talking about in this context of our practice for samadhi is not necessarily deep states of absorption. There is that in samadhi, but all we need to develop is successive moments of mindfulness, continuous mindfulness. That's the kind of samadhi that leads to this connecting to our experience, to this 
this sense of presence and undistractedness, though the mind is responsive and what we call malleable, that there's not a lot of distractions. The hindrances have been let go of. There's a sense of um, joy and happiness in the practice. And so the mind is just fully present for what is. What the mind can do then is open to basically insight. And this is always what samadhi is in service of, is to lead us to deeper into insight. The link here in this list from concentration goes to the, 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 how they define insight, is knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yata bhutanyana dasana. Knowledge and vision of things as they are. Turn to insight. So we let go of the samadhi and that sense of protectedness and start to look directly at our experience, see what's happening, see the way things are. And we've talked about what is it we see when we look in this way. Joseph uh, spoke the other night about this clarity of seeing that sees beyond concepts to the true nature of things. We see the selfless nature, the impermanent nature, of things. We see how things are conditioned. And it's not just a superficial seeing. You know, as, as we say, you, any, you go to ask anyone, sure, things are changing. We see it in this deep way. Knowledge and vision means not intellectual. Knowledge and vision. We really see truly, deeply for ourselves. We see the inherent unreliability of experience, the unsatisfactoriness of experience. And then comes another interesting turn. So we've taken this concentrated mind, we've opened it to look clearly at the nature of our experience and seeing the impermanence, the selfless nature, the conditioned nature leads to the next factor, which is disenchantment, nibida. Joseph spoke about this either in a Q&A or in his talk the other night, disenchantment, breaking the spell, the illusion that we usually live in and under. Often this Pali word nibida was translated as revulsion or disgust. And one would get to this part of the list and think, hmm, you know, joy, happiness, tranquility, and then what? Revulsion, disgust, I, I don't want that. I don't want to be revulsed by you know, my experience or disgusted by it. And I was always a little concerned about that myself. It's like, that doesn't seem like it's you know, really meeting the experience and fully connecting with it and allowing me to open to it. Andy Olensky, who's the, um, a scholar at the uh, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies just down the road, wrote a great paper on this, just a very short paper, but I found it so helpful. He looked really into the etymology of this term and could see more clearly what was meant by it, by nibida. He said that the literal meaning is without finding, without finding. And he tells this story from the suttas uh, of, of how it's talked about. There is a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months 
and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone, and thus he turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by this bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone. But when he, is, when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out in disgust. So it's really important what's, what's being said here. It's not the object that's disgusting. It's this natural movement of mind as we see the inherent impossibility of objects to give us lasting satisfaction, the kind of happiness that, that this teaching offers to us can't be found in the objects of the world or in transitory experiences. And there's this natural turning away. This is what Nibbida is. So it's something that we, where we let go easily of whatever the entrancement was. It no longer has the appeal. It's not disgusting. We're not pushing it away out of aversion. Again, I was trying to think of, of good analogies for this. And I came up with a rather extreme example. <laughs> um, remember when you were, if you were like me, 10 or 12 years old, and you'd come home from school, what was a good source of happiness for you? For me, it was to watch about two hours of television, you know, old reruns of Gilligan's Island and cartoons and Get Smart and... I don't know, I'm talking to a certain age group here, I'm sure, but you can imagine that was happiness. Imagine if someone said, now you get to watch two hours of television. Would you find happiness in that, satisfaction in that? It would just be, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I used to find happiness in it. Now I no longer do. That's Nibida. Another little analogy. Um, We don't often give you much news, but I'll I'll tell you something. It's not news, it's just a day, which is today. Today is Black Friday. I don't know if you have any memory of what that means. Black Friday is the day after Thanksgiving that's considered to be the busiest shopping day of the year. (laughs) And so the media and stores all join together to hype this by having these outrageous sales of like a television for $50 or, you know, 10 cents for something. And and so people line up for hours to get these deals on stuff. So today, that's what was happening. Do you have any interest in joining Black Friday? What would you feel like if we dropped you in Hampshire Mall out there? That's Nibida. That's turning away from Something that for some people, there's extreme happiness. You know, it was on the web today, the news. One guy said, if they're selling it, we're buying it. And basically, that's the the mind state. It's like bargains. It doesn't matter if you wanted it or not. It's cheap, so you buy it. And so out of Nibida, what Nibida brings is just, there's a little bit of a sense of letting go, yes. But it's out of a sense of there's something so much better that's on offer here. So there's this turning that's very natural 
and 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 wise and so it come it leads naturally to the next step dispassion so from nibida disenchantment not finding to dispassion viraga dispassion viraga raga usually translated as passion or lust so it's the ending of passion lust or desire this is the stage of the path of this process that can, is where it be, actually becomes transcendent. If you remember all the previous links, they're very much in our relationship to um, the relative world, to our emotional life, to a sense of well-being, beginning with suffering and faith, sort of these relative qualities. And there's this moment here where we turn out of nibida, out of disenchantment. There's just a natural letting go of that movement of the mind, of greed and aversion, of holding on, seeing again that there's, that's not where happiness is found. Another classic way of talking about this is turning to the deathless. Again, inclining the mind, knowing that there, and it's not like there's a there, there, but you know, in a, to make a relative thing, that that's not going to do it for me. Really seen for myself, out of this place of, of, of well-being and, and, and happiness and contentment, knowing that these beautiful qualities are only cultivated through clear seeing, not through getting or having any particular experience. And so we turn in this direction of letting go more and more. This dispassion is what leads to the next quality, the next factor, liberation, vimuti, liberation. Out of that deep letting go, the mind opens and awakens. Namajima said, the practitioner understands as it really is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is a cessation of suffering. This is the path to the cessation of suffering. These are the taints. The taints are basically the defilements. This is the origin of the taints. This is the cessation of the taints. This is the path to the cessation of the taints. The practitioner is knowing and seeing thus. The mind is liberated from the taint of sensuality, from the taint of existence, and from the taint of ignorance. When it is liberated, the knowledge arises, it is liberated. But it doesn't stop with liberation. This is just the 11th of the steps. Then there's the actual reviewing kind of knowledge, which often happens in the teachings, knowledge of destruction of the taints. Asava, kaya, kam, jnana. It's a reviewing and what is the power of that reviewing is it's unshakable then. There's no doubt the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. Un- uprooted not to arise again. This is complete liberation that's being talked about here. Mind of an arhant. It shows what's possible for us as we continue on this path. But not to hold this lofty goal, you know, this lifetime, perhaps many lifetimes, maybe, out there in the future. 
Where I find this teaching helpful, even if I'm only touching it to small degrees, is the importance of this cultivation of the wholesome qualities, but the willingness to recognize when there is that turning away and letting go. When there is a letting go of whatever you were caught in, aversion or wanting or doubt or fear, to notice the ending of that, the ending of whatever difficulty. This is an important moment. This is where we're moving along that path. And sure, because the grounds are still there, the conditions are still there, they may arise again. But this noticing of the endings of whatever constriction is what will actually keep us moving along this amazing process of deeper and deeper liberation, deeper and deeper possibilities. The Buddha was a human just like us. So many people just like us have walked this path and experienced this kind of liberation. It's possible for all of us. But don't make it seem too complicated. You don't have to memorize this. You don't have to, you know, work out where you are on the path or you know, become despondent because you don't seem think you're very far. Use it as inspiration in the practice. I taught this, uh, it was taught at the DPP, the Dedicated Practitioners Program that I'm involved in at Spirit Rock. And one of the students there so loved it. I was just really inspired by her inspiration. And every time I would speak to her, she would talk about how it uplifted her heart to open to this teaching and know it was possible. We spend so much time with our difficulties. It's really important to remember how important and valuable It's a cultivation of these beautiful states of mind like joy and happiness and contentment and tranquility that they're necessary on this path. And faith, faith in your capacity to awaken. The capacity is there in all of us. It's onward leading. We just need to take one step at a time, one breath at a time, one experience, one moment at a time. As Ajahn Chah said, this great quote, someone may have said it already, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. You let go a lot, a lot of peace. Let go completely, complete peace. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.